Welcome to this episode of the Team Novo Nordis podcast. I'm your host, Zylan Fanake, with me in the marketing department, press officer of the team, Tim Lindley. Tim, how are you in rainy Italy today? Good morning, Zylan. You hit the nail on the head. It's raining yet again. Uh, and you're there in sunny South Africa enjoying your summer, so I'm not even going to ask about your weather. Well, I'm going to tell you anyway, because it's 10 a.m. here and I already got 80Ks in on the bike. Went out at 5 a.m. with the group ride this morning. Sun coming up along the coast. Oh, there's, as, as after the coffee stop, as one of my friends noted, there is no better way to start the day. So, yeah, in a good mood today, man. You're a dedicated pro. And, and also, that like, we're supposed to be kind of still in the off-season. So, what, what are you doing doing 80K? Preparing for the season to come. I've got Ironman in March and um, my goal is to stop finishing in the dark. I really want to finish in daylight next year. <laughs> so that involves six months of training, man. Um, yeah, not a great feeling doing 12 and a half hours and the sun's gone down and it's getting cold and your poor loved ones are waiting for you to finish. So yeah, the goal next year is to finish in, in sunlight, that's for sure. Um, what's been going on at the team? We've just come off a, a media camp slash training camp in Portugal. It feels like ages ago now, but what was that? Like three, four weeks ago, probably. Yeah, just I think we finished just three and a half weeks ago. Um, and pretty good considering it was our first time in Portugal down on the southwest in the Algarve, right on the on, on the, the, the last point, basically on the coast down there. The amazing coastline. We found some nice climbs on the, on the internal hills near Portimao. And I think it went really well. Um, we, we've both seen the photos from from the camp and the videos coming through. So there's going to be some great stuff coming out in January. And then we've been getting busy. All the announcements coming out. Rosters, pro team, Devo team, new kit, new colours on the bike. Getting ready for January. Ready for the next camp, the performance camp, which is going to be down in Spain. Um, so it's been full gas, as you know. Yeah, we've released our, our look and feel for next year and the response has been amazing. Celebrating 100 years of Novo Nordisk's existence in 2023 and a really cool um, creative display of that in the kit. Really cool to see that it's it's gone down really well. We have uh, released the Pro Team kits. There's green in the kit in addition this year. We have not released the Devo Team kit yet and this podcast will come out just as we release the Devo team kit. And I think, Tim, that is going to be a popular one as well. 100%. And I think everybody can... Uh, it's, it's exciting for us. It's, it looks absolutely fantastic. And you all need to keep your eye out there. Right. Let's get to today's episodes. TNN ambassador Rebecca Ferruta. Um, our ambassadors actually got to spend some time with us at the training camp in Portugal as well. Becky was one of them out there. Um, Tim, you and I both were talking that we got to learn a bit more about her story this year. She's been a long-term member of Team Nova Nordis, but I quite hadn't had an opportunity to do a deep dive into her story. But Jeep is what an inspirational one, eh? considering the childhood she had and what she's achieved today really is inspiring. Yeah, I mean, Becky, if you talk about overcoming challenges, Becky, Becky's right up there. I mean, I was a little bit like yourself. I joined the team at the end of 2019 and then COVID happened. So in terms of spending time with our ambassadors, it's been restricted over the last couple of years. And this year was fortunate enough uh, to do an event with Becky in New Jersey at the Novo Nordis HQ in America. 
and got to hear that story firsthand. Um, and without giving too much away, it's, it's a mind-blowing journey that she's been on and, and keeps going as well. Um, a lot of people think that this team is about the pro riders and their inspirational journey um, and how they live and race with diabetes every day. But our ambassadors, um, their stories are sometimes even wilder. Uh, and I think this time it's going to be a really interesting episode and everybody should really listen deeply to what Becky's got to say. Yeah, I think without further ado, we'll let her tell her story. No one better to do it. It's, yeah, I found it inspiring. Really, really love this chat with her and we hope you will too. So let's get to Becky Furuta. Becky, thanks so much for uh, chatting to us today on the Team Nova Nordis podcast, waking up bright and early on a Monday morning. Where where are you and what time is it? So I'm in Boulder, Colorado, and it's 8 a.m., so it's not super early here. Oh, I hope this isn't a pain, you know, you like Monday mornings, I, I, it's 5 p.m. where I am in South Africa. I do not schedule calls for first thing on a Monday morning. It would be so hard. But I guess this is a casual chat. It's not like a serious work call for you, is it? Right. No, I'm I'm in my home office with my coffee. It's perfect. Yeah. Cool. Um, did you grow up in Colorado or like which states in America did you grow up in? I was born in Colorado. My family moved a lot. So when people ask, where are you from? That's that's a hard question to answer because I wasn't really any place more than, you know, three or four years. Um, we moved throughout Colorado. We started on what we call the Front Range, which is like Denver, Boulder area. Um, my family actually lived for a long time in this old Victorian farmhouse outside of Boulder, Colorado. It was beautiful. And um, yeah, but they, they moved quite a bit. My dad, you know, was sort of a restless guy. He was uh, an entrepreneur. And so he took a lot of different jobs and kind of entered a lot of different industries. And so we lived on the East Coast for a while. I actually went back to college there. That's where my undergrad degree is from. So yeah, we were kind of all over. What but is that? Um, Colorado feels like home to me. I mean, I, I would say Colorado is my home. And what does that feel like as a kid? Because it's it's really important as a kid to have friends, to make friends, and you have these relationships, and you move, and you have to start over again. What is What was that like for you? I mean, my childhood was challenging for a lot of different reasons. My dad was a really volatile guy. My mom had significant mental health issues. She was really depressed. And as a consequence of that, you know, our our there wasn't a lot of continuity in our lives in general. You know, in a lot of ways, my my four sisters and I, we just kind of raised each other. We, we really took care of each other through our, our childhood and gave one another the continuity that we needed. My older sister and I are 10 months apart. I have a sister who's seven years younger and a sister who's 16 years younger. So, you know, there's there's a big age spread and um, and we just kind of took on the responsibilities of raising one another. You know, we were, we were moved in and out between different foster homes as a kid. It, it was not a, a very consistent upbringing by any means, but we gave each other that consistency. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I guess you had, you know, you had the siblings there and maybe, I don't know, was it easier all being girls and you could all sort of relate to what you were going through together? I think, I mean, all being girls sometimes was a source of a lot of conflict. <laughs> there were definitely sort of normal girl arguments about, you know, who took my sweater or who's been in my room. Um, so there, there was a fair amount of that too. But yeah, I think, I think that, you know, my older sister in particular is very nurturing. She actually runs a school now, which 
totally fits her personality. And I think she was the one that kind of kept us all together. When I was diagnosed with diabetes, she was the one that showed up with cookbooks and books on how to do diabetes and, you know, was was just like ready to take charge and lists of doctors that she would recommend. I mean, she she's always kind of been, I think, the one that, that sort of took the lead in terms of parenting. But yeah, I think, I mean, I think the fact that we were all girls maybe made it a little bit easier. And, and um, you know, it's interesting because even growing up in the same household, our experiences of that were very different, right? Like we all have different, you know, interpretations of events and, and different understandings of what went on there. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think we were able to kind of come together and, and really make it work for each other. And uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? Like going through that, having a volatile childhood, like what did, What was your vision for yourself? What did you see yourself becoming ultimately? Could you, was there space to dream? You know, we had this old black and white TV in our kitchen. Um, and my mom would always, you know, turn on the TV and she'd make us breakfast and, and we'd sit there and watch the news. And I actually remember watching the news the day that Sally Ride was, was the first woman in the U.S. who went into space. And that was like, I was probably five or six. And I, I decided at that moment that I wanted to be an astronaut. And so, you know, I wrote NASA and I watched all these movies and got all these books about space. And so when I was really young, I like my dream was to someday be an astronaut. As I got older, I mean, for sure, you know, growing up, you know, I was, I, my family was homeless for a time. Um, you know, we, we lived in a shelter for a time. We lived in a motel. Again, I was being moved back and forth between different homes. And, and I think you lose the space to dream. There was a point in my life where I literally thought about what I was going to do that day to get through. And that was as far as I could think ahead. Like I couldn't think a week ahead, a month ahead. You know, I wasn't particularly concerned in high school with my grades. I was literally just trying to get through each day. How old were you at this time when you were homeless? Yeah, so when I was about 14, that's when my mom became pregnant with my youngest sister. Um, and it was unexpected. My mom was 48. She, My mom had type 2 diabetes. She wasn't particularly healthy at any point in her life. Um, she was morbidly obese from the time she was very, very young. And so the pregnancy itself was complicated. She had a lot of other health issues. She had, you know, poorly managed glucose. She had high cholesterol. She had high blood pressure. And she wasn't really getting great medical care. One thing about, you know, domestic violence and, and family violence is that people become very afraid to go to healthcare providers. None of us routinely saw medical providers because they're afraid of something being uncovered or a disclosure of abuse being made. So my mom wasn't really even getting, you know, good prenatal care. And the pregnancy very quickly became an emergency and she delivered my youngest sister um, very, very prematurely. My, my sister weighed a pound and a half at birth. It was an emergency cesarean section. You know, the baby was taken by helicopter to a neonatal intensive care unit. And that was the series of events that bankrupted my family. My father had actually been extremely successful. He's very well off. And in the span of about four or five, six months, he lost everything, his life savings, the house, his business, everything folded, trying to take care of my mother and my youngest sister and, and the cost of, of their health care. And that was the point when we ended up in a motel in, uh, in a small town on the western slope of Colorado. It was the Will Rogers Motel. It had bars on the windows and there was uh, no box spring on the bed. It was a, a spring 
bed with a spring mattress. It was, it was impossible to sleep on. Um, and it was one room for six people, including an infant on a heart rate monitor. And it was, it was extremely stressful. Yeah. Wow. It was a really what do you tell your friends at school when they ask you, where do you live? I mean, you don't like, that's the truth. You know, you become, you become really good at hiding who you are, right? You, you don't tell people anything about you. When people ask to come over to your house, you, you make excuses and you tell them why you can't. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that, that that was the hardest thing. There's, there was a lot of shame, a lot of embarrassment, you know, again, at various points in that we were moved into foster care and you don't want to tell someone that that's not your real family. It, it was it was a tough set of circumstances in a lot of ways. And, you know, in the U.S., if you're in foster care, for example, you can't get a driver's license. So when all of my 16 year old friends were learning to drive, you know, I, I couldn't I couldn't go out and get a driver's license. I didn't get my first driver's license. until I was 27. And so there were all these, you know, as hard as the circumstances in the home would be. There were also these things that were just huge missed opportunities. You know, those those I think were the things that bothered me the most as a kid, like those just normal childhood experiences, like having friends over that I never got to have. And um, and that was tough. So yeah, I was I was kind of isolated. I was I was sort of like a a lonely kid, a little bit of a hermit. And I would go out, I had rollerblades, I'd go out and like rollerblade for hours at a bike. Um, and that's actually when I really started riding a bike. I I was in the motel for about 48 hours before I realized I couldn't tolerate it. And so I would just get on my bike, point it in a direction and, and go ride. And what at the time was a really hard set of circumstances actually became just a fantastic adventure. You know, I was out there on my own with my bike, seeing the world. I mean, Western Colorado is beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful places in Colorado. And so I was riding all of this like amazing, beautiful terrain incredibly friendly to cycling and so in a lot of ways I just chose to seize it as an opportunity as opposed to seeing it as you know a, a tragedy and nobody cared like people were more than happy to have me go out on my bike I want to get to <clears throat> to the bike and I want to get to diabetes but at the risk of sounding like a psychologist here and please stop me if I get too personal or anything um but a lot of people don't, you said, you know, you hide who you are and a lot of people don't know who you are well into your 20s. You don't really know yourself and it's when you start doing the personal work that you start getting to know yourself better and you, there are parts of you you like and you don't like. But an experience like yours, an upbringing like yours, does it accelerate you getting to really know who you are or does it de, is, what's the opposite, de-accelerate, is that the word? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean... The statistics for, for kids in America who grow up in foster care, and I'm a huge foster care, I, I do a lot of advocacy for foster care kids for this reason. The statistics are abysmal. You know, about half of kids who grow up in foster care, who spend any time at all in foster care, will end up homeless. Only 4% will go on to earn a college degree, actually have a master's degree. You know, um, wow. uh, yeah, I mean, the statistics are really bad. Like, the outcomes are really bad. And it is because, again, you 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 know, your earliest understandings of how the world work, you know, before you know anybody else, those come from your family, right? And um, my earliest understandings of how interactions and, and social situations work, my roadmap wasn't very good. And so it made it really hard to figure it out later in life. And I still do, you know, I mean, I like, 
I mean, honestly, I would, I would never say that I overcame those challenges. I would say that I learned to live with them and I work on them all the time, but my friends will tell you all the time. I will have reactions to things. And I have to stop myself and be like, you know, is this a normal reaction? Like, is this how I should be reacting? And I, I will actually check in with people who have maybe a better frame of reference. Um, and, and they laugh about that, but it's, it's important, right? Cause you have to, you know, you have to sort of reframe you know, how you respond to things, because of course your, your responses, when I was young, my responses were just trying to survive. I mean, there were times when we didn't have food in the house. There were times when we didn't have running water and you just are always in this mode of figuring it out. And, um, you know, then when you have stability and you don't have to do that, that's when you have to figure yourself out. And, and that's definitely a harder process for sure. I think one thing that I, I think if I, I, if I could pinpoint the thing that probably made me most resilient, it was that I never really doubted my own abilities. You know, even I, I had maybe a, a little bit of an inflated sense of self, right? And so <laughs> I was always confident that I'd figure it out. I never got into a situation and thought, well, this is it. And so I was like, I'll, I'll figure it out. You know, I'll, I'll get myself out of this. Is that a personality thing, do you think? I think it's a little bit of a personality. Maybe it's learned resilience. I mean, I, I don't know, but I I was always comfortable taking risks because I always trusted that, you know, I would I would put the pieces together. And and that's led me in a lot of great directions, actually. I mean, that's part of the reason I'm, I'm racing a bike now, right? Well, I mean, you know, where you came from and what you've become, like, it, it is incredible, man. Hats off, like, hats off to you. Um, I want to go back to the bike, and you were saying that you were in the motel for 48 hours and then realized, you know, you had to get out and, and the bike. People say the bike is freedom, but is that it? Was was the bike an escape? It was, it was freedom. It was your time and your space. Is that what it meant to you in that moment? Yeah, I mean, initially, I just wanted my, my initial plan was like, just get out of here, just physically get out of the confines of this very small motel room with all these bodies. But, you know, quickly became kind of the process of learning who I was. Um, it was empowering, you know, you run into these like minor issues with the bike, like you get a flat or you, you know, break a spoke or, or you'd have to learn to, to, you know, fix your chain or whatever. And, and just going through those processes actually made me feel capable. Um, and, and strong. And yeah, I mean, I just, I think really it just calmed down everything that's going on in my life. Like I was riding and I just felt calm all the time. And, and I was not a calm kid. I mean, you know, I think if I would have been born 10 years later, I, I certainly would have been diagnosed and medicated with something, right? Like I, I was not a calm kid. I was, I was very, I had a chip on my shoulder and I was always in motion. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just relaxed all of that and just gave me a space where I could just, you know, think about things and process things and, and, and just, yeah, be free, be on my own. And when do you start figuring out that you're actually good at this? You're actually athletic and you have talent. When, when does that start? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting because as a kid I had done like gymnastics and swimming and never really excelled at anything. And you know, my, my parents were kind of disparaging of it. Like my parents were always like, none of you are athletes and none of you have talent in this area. And so but that was, that was really something that I didn't feel good about. Like it wasn't something that I, you know, and, and again, being in the U S cycling is a huge sport. Like people ride bikes, but they ride it for recreation or transportation. You know, you don't see a lot of bike races growing up in the United States. So I don't even think it occurred to me that it was a sport in like the traditional sense until I got to high school and 
there they had a high school mountain biking team. And, you know, as always on my bike, like people, you know, people who didn't know me, I mean, it was a small town, it was a town of like a thousand people, you know, people saw me on my bike all the time. And, and the coach approached me and said, Hey, you know, it's obvious you like to ride. Why don't, why don't you give this a go? Why don't you try this? And that really saved me. Um, that was really the moment when my identity shifted. I was good. I mean, I, I got on the bike and I was better than most of the, the guys on the team. And I immediately went from being the poor kid, the homeless kid, the kid with the wrong address. You know, people didn't put a lot of faith in, in my outcomes. You know, there, there weren't a lot of people rallying for me. And then all of a sudden I was a talented athlete. And that really shifted the narrative, both for me and, and for other people. And how did your sporting career and your journey um, progress from there then? Yeah, so I, I raced mountain bikes through high school. I actually raced. My dad had given me a mountain bike when I was in the fourth grade. And I raced that mountain bike in high school, even though it was way too small. Until And this is like kind of the kid's story where you realize in hindsight how naive you were. There was a raffle for a mountain bike uh, that the school was running. And I won that raffle. And I realize now that I didn't win that raffle. Um, somebody realized that I needed the right size mountain bike and better equipment wow. and and someone rigged that raffle and to this day I have no idea who it is but um, there were people which is kind of a nice thing because you, you don't feel like there are people looking out for you when you're in that situation and looking back gosh there were a lot of people looking out for me um, but yeah so I raced that bike you know through through high school and then went to college kept riding um, actually went to the George, uh, George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and um, did four years there and then decided to come back to Colorado. And part of the reason I came back was I came back on a cycling scholarship for, for CU Boulder. And so that's when I started racing collegiately. And where are your parents in this? Like you, you were told, you know, athletic, you guys aren't, you know, you don't have that kind of mobility and talent. And like, what are they saying when you are starting to excel and getting a scholarship? Yeah, so my parents never actually saw me race in high school, never went to a single race. Um, and then, you know, when I left for, for George Washington, my plan was actually not to go to school. I didn't have any plans for college. I, I left with $40 in my pocket and took an internship that paid $600 a month and wound up working for Dr. Muhammad Yunus, who ended up winning a Nobel Peace Prize in 2005. So it's kind of a crazy journey. Yeah, that's what I mean. I took a lot of gambles in life um, with my $40. Like when I arrived in DC, I had no place to live. So I was living in the, the boiler room at American University. A bunch of other interns would let me in and like, and sometimes they let me sleep in their room with their roommate or whatever's gone. So yeah, I just kind of couch surfed for a long time. And it was actually Dr. Yunus who was like, you need to go to college. Like, you're bright, you're talented, you know, this is a waste. And, uh, and, and so he was the one who actually sat me down and helped me with my, my college admissions. And um, when I came back to go to CU, my mom by that time was critically ill. She was dying. That was, that was another reason that I decided to return to Colorado. And, you know, I mean, it was always tough. Like one of my mom, one of the last conversations I had with my mom was after I had my son and I was getting ready to go do I think it was actually like a sprint triathlon or something. And she said to me, I never did that when you were young. You know, I never left you guys to go, go do something like that. And I was looking at this woman who was, you know, in her late fifties on oxygen, immobilized at home, you know, morbidly obese with a whole myriad of health conditions that she wasn't managing. And I thought, but how great would it have been if you did? You know, like if you would have gone out and taken care of yourself, you would have, my kids will happily trade 
an hour or two for me to go out on a run or a ride so that I can be there for their wedding and their college graduation and all of the important moments in, in their lives. And my mom missed so much of that. She never saw my youngest sister graduate high school. She died before. Um, never saw me make it to, to Team Nova Nordisk or make it as an elite cyclist. She died before I ever got any cycling contracts. Um, and she missed so many big moments. And I don't know, maybe she wouldn't have gotten them anyway. Maybe the cycling things never made sense to her. You know, maybe she wouldn't have been enthusiastic for me when when I did sign that contract. But um, yeah, I mean, she definitely was never never invested in the sporting side of it. My dad actually never seemed to be. And then maybe about seven years ago, I went into his office and all over his walls were magazine articles and race results oh, and pictures wow. of me. And his, his receptionist, she was like, you know, your dad's really proud of you. And that was something that he'd never said to me. I had no idea that he had collected all this stuff through the years. But um, he, I mean, maybe he was more invested than I realized. Like he, he's definitely proud of it now. Definitely, that's his way of of communicating it. We're not all um, good at opening up and speaking freely, but yeah, I tend to show it in other ways. So collecting all those things, but I'd say one hundred percent is you're yeah, proud of you, man. Um, it's incredible. You got a master's degree now. You've turned your life around. Like that is, I'm lost for words. Like I've known you for a while. We've had a bit of chats, and obviously, you know, you load your biography onto the Team No One Orders website. But like getting a, a first person account, man, it's just yeah. I've got goosebumps. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you: Did your mother have type one diabetes or type two? She had type two. My grandmother on my dad's side had type one. And she was also adult onset. And she was an incredible woman. Yeah. Why was she what made her so incredible? I mean, if there if there's one person, I guess people, she and my grandfather both were just amazing people who, you know, stepped in a lot of times in our childhood and, and took care of us. And and she was um yeah, she's definitely like kind of a feisty personality. She she was not a you know a quiet, passive woman, but I I liked that about her. And some of my happiest memories actually as a kid were you know in my grandma's kitchen. She had all these old aprons, and you'd be sitting there cooking with her. Um, you know she she was she's just a lot of fun. But she she was diagnosed with type one, and um, took meticulous care of herself. I mean she you know before we had the benefit of even whole blood glucose monitoring she couldn't even check her blood sugar you know she she would weigh her food she would measure her food you know she's very precise with when she dosed her insulin I mean, she she just took incredible care of herself and it was because she had all these things she wanted to do she and my grandfather loved to travel you know she has some crazy story about stumbling into a nightclub in ireland with all these young people dancing and she and my grandfather were in their like late 60s early 70s and they stayed out all night dancing with these young people and she, she's like it's one of the best nights of her life you know and um, oh. yeah i mean yeah she collected adventure novels like she had this like real spirit of adventure and and she just was adamant that diabetes wasn't going to be the thing that curtailed that and so, you know, she lived and lived fully and well and healthfully, you know, died in her 80s um, and, and did it at a time when we didn't have like great insulin and we didn't have, you know, the best technology to, to manage the condition. She, she was just, I mean, she was just a tough spirit that wasn't going to let anything stand between her and what she wanted to do. Did she give you hope uh, when you were diagnosed then? 
Absolutely. My daughter, I was pregnant with my daughter when I was diagnosed and my daughter's named after her. Um, because Whoa. all the time, my older sister and I, yeah, my older sister and I would be like, what are we going to do? Like, why is my blood glucose this number instead of this number? And, you know, when you're first trying to figure it out, it's so confusing. And and we would always say, well, what would grandma have done? Like, what, what was grandma's approach to this? Like, how did she, you know, what did she eat for breakfast or what did she, what did she do? And I do remember she would walk after every meal, she'd eat her breakfast. And then about 30 minutes later, she'd go for a little walk around the neighborhood to help bring that blood glucose down which, you know, it was exactly the thing that I used to do when I was pregnant. I mean, I, I, I took that tactic from her because I was like, this is, this is a whole lot easier than just injecting a lot of insulin all the time. So yeah, I mean, she, she really did carry me through. What symptoms did you have when you were diagnosed and was it easily found or was the, the pregnancy sort of masking that it was diabetes? Yeah, I mean, pregnancy definitely masked it as diabetes because the symptoms of diabetes and the symptoms of pregnancy kind of overlap. Like I had a lot of fatigue, you know, I was peeing all the time. Um, I didn't feel great. I mean, I was having like tons of nausea, my headaches, I, you know, I, I felt pretty terrible. I was thirsty all the time. I was hungry all the time. But again, like, you know, those are also the symptoms of the first trimester of pregnancy. So it, it wasn't, I didn't notice actually until I went out for a bike ride. And um, I was out riding with my team at the time. I, I was under a contract with a, a Boulder domestic elite team. And I went out for a team ride and just felt terrible. Like I couldn't keep up. You know, my legs were like lead. I came home and I was drinking just a massive amount of water, like bottle after bottle. And, you know, I have a background in public health. My master's is in public health. I have a family history of diabetes. I, I realized immediately that I had diabetes. I, I actually thought that I had pregnancy-induced gestational diabetes. I thought I would be diabetic to the end of my pregnancy. And then once I delivered this baby, you know, life would go back to normal. Um, but it was clear pretty quickly that that was not the case. My, my fasting blood glucose when I went into my doctor was so high. They sent me immediately to the emergency room. And at that point, I was only 22 weeks pregnant, which is before you'd normally see the symptoms of gestational diabetes. So they, they knew it was not gestational, whether it was type one or type two, was was more of the question. And how did they? How long did it take before they figured it out? That it was yeah, so they one. run an antibody test. Yeah, they do an antibody test, which was the right thing to do because a lot of people don't even get that. Like a lot of times, they just make assumptions, especially if you're an adult. It, at least I was in a healthcare facility where, you know, they were savvy enough to say let's test for antibodies. Um, but those results take like four or five days, and so in the interim, they decided that they were just going to treat it like type two diabetes, which meant that they sent me out of there with, you know, a, a prescription for a glucometer and, you know, a bunch of strips and told me to make an appointment with the doctor first thing, you know, once, once uh, I got home and, and to just, you know, figure it out for the next four or five days. Like I didn't really get any tips. They, they advised me to eat low carb. Um, that was the other recommendation, but there, you know, it's like, I felt great when I was in the hospital and they diagnosed me. I was glad we knew what was going on. When they released me and said, okay, keep yourself alive for the next four or five days, <laughs> you know, that that was a little bit more stressful. I had like, no idea. Luck. And they'd given me, right, yeah. And they'd given me insulin in the, the hospital. You know, they put me on an insulin drip. And so I had no idea how my body would respond to that or anything else. So I went home and I got on my bike. And my husband at the time was like, what are you doing? Like, this is, this is a terrible decision. You have no idea what's going to happen. You have no clue. But, but I... I wanted to not be afraid to get on my bike again. And 
I did recognize that exercise would help manage my, my blood glucose. I knew that that was going to be a critical thing to do. And I was so used to managing stress by getting on my bike that that was just the intuitive response. Um, but yeah, the, those four or five days, and I did, I survived the ride, obviously it was fine. Um, but yeah, I, I, those four or five days were by far the most stressful until I had a firm diagnosis and met with an endocrinologist who could really give me a plan forward. It was, it was really stressful. Man, you've had so much happen to you in life. You're a very outgoing person. When I see you, you're bubbly. You're very happy. Why aren't you more angry? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, here's what I would say. Everyone gets challenges in life. We're all going to suffer. Like none of us are going to make it to the end of this without our share of, of difficulties and suffering. And, you know, some people probably get more than their share. Some people probably don't quite get their share, but we're all going to, we're all going to hit it. And I think the key is what you do with that, right? Like you can get angry, but you know, that's really just punishing yourself. I mean, you know, getting mad just, just makes your own life harder or you can use those things as opportunities. And I think that that's what I've done. You know, I could not have told you 10, 15 years ago that I would get type one diabetes and it would open all these incredible doors for me, right? But, but that's been my experience. I got type one diabetes. And it wound up taking me on my bike all over the world. I've met incredible people. I've gotten to do incredible things. I've spoken at the United Nations. And it's, it's, been, it's been an amazing journey. If I would have gotten angry, I would have missed out on all of that. You know, as a kid, if I would have just gotten angry and, and punished myself, I would have missed out on getting a master's degree and going to college and having a family. And, you know, so I, I think the key is not to get angry. I think the key is to get busy, right? Like the key is to like, you know, let it, let it be a source of empowerment and figure out, okay, how do I get through this and, and what's next? How do I use this to do something bigger? Oh, that's incredible, man. Um, yeah, I think a very positive outlook and definitely positivity always outweighs negativity or pessimism. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you got involved with Team Nova Nordisk? Yes, in my endocrinologist's office. Um, and I just had my daughter who, by the way, I, I always have to say she was born perfectly healthy despite having diabetes and pregnancy. And I think that's important because a lot of women are afraid to have babies and they have type one, but she's born perfectly average, seven and a half pounds, no problems with her delivery. Uh, it was actually a lot easier than her brother's. <laughs> so when I didn't have diabetes, so um, yeah, no complications. And, and she is, you know, now 15 and perfectly healthy. So um, so I think that's important. But um, I mean, yeah, so I, I was in my endocrinologist's office. She was about two and a half and her brother was four. And I was ready to go back to cycling. You know, I'd taken some time away, both because I was diagnosed with diabetes and because I had a baby and a toddler at home and that's a lot. And I felt like I was ready to, to maybe look at getting competitive again. And there's this magazine on the table that talked about the predecessor to Team Nova Nordisk, which was Team Type 1. And at that time, they had six or seven guys racing with type 1 diabetes. Most of the, the riders were not diabetic, but there, there were six or seven guys who had type 1. And I was like, well, that's interesting. And so I, I reached out to the team and, and just asked, you know, how are you doing this? I mean, I'm still riding. I'm still training, kind of, you know, training like with a baby in a bike trailer, but you know, I'm not really training in intensity. I have no idea what I would do during a race. Like, like how are these guys doing it? How are they managing it? And the team said, you know, why don't you send us your race results and we'll take a look 
and we'll get back to you. So I sent in my race results, you know, kind of wondering why that would matter. And they called me a couple of days later and said, we have a ticket to Tucson, Arizona to go to training camp. Just come join our women's team. And, um, you know, I said, yes. I mean, like my immediate response is like, absolutely. Like, let's, let's do this. Um, and then I went home and told my husband, (laughs) 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 who luckily is the calmest person in the world. It's like, that's great. That's a really good idea. Um, and then I showed up at training camp in Tucson, which was crazy. Like, I totally felt like I was punching above my weight. I mean, I, I was completely out of my element. I remember getting picked up at the airport you know, by all the the swaniers and the staff and the mechanics and, and getting in this van and not saying a word, like just listening to everybody else talk. And, and just and like, there's that moment in life where you're like, what am I doing here? Like, I do not belong in this space. Um, but it was great. It was fantastic. Like when I showed up, you know, we all show up and we're all having dinner and I looked around and there's all these people testing their blood sugar and injecting insulin. And I'd never been in an environment with a bunch of other people who who you know lived with type 1 diabetes it was it was a really cool moment did you learn anything about your about your management and like as your man was your management good at that point is it good now my management one thing about getting diagnosed in pregnancy is that you become very rigorous with your management um you know i mean there was nothing more important to me than making sure my daughter was healthy. And so from day one, I was like, whatever I have to do, however, this has to be, however structured, organized it's, it's got to be, that's what I'm willing to do. So I never, never really struggled with my, my glucose management. Um, for sure. It got better when I was with the team. And actually I think the biggest reason it got better is because up until that point, I'd been kind of the, the classic closet diabetic. I didn't, I didn't really share with people that I had type one diabetes. If I had to inject insulin, I would go in a bathroom to do it. I never checked my blood glucose at work in front of people. I actually had a colleague with a daughter who had type one, and I never discussed the fact that I had type one diabetes with her. Um, and then all of a sudden I was in this environment where people were very open about it. And, you know, part of the the job for the riders is to actually talk about having type one diabetes. Like you can't, I mean, you've got it all over your Jersey, you know, and you, you can't hide it. And so it made me be more open. And once I was more open about it, it was actually so much easier to manage. I mean, I think trying to hide it really restricts your ability to manage the condition, but when you're just open and honest about it, you know, then, then you just do what you need to do. It's like, you know, a habit is just brushing your teeth in the morning. Like you just don't think about it. No, and it's amazing that you guys are so open and honest about it because it's through vulnerability that other people open up and, and learn that they aren't alone, you know? I know a lot of the riders, when we had camp together, they say, like, this is a weird thing to say, but I didn't really understand or, you know, compute that we all have the same condition. I know that sounds so strange, um, they would say, but we do, and it's yeah, it's great and yeah, to be in a safe space where... You can be open. It helps so many other people. Um, I always ask you guys, like, for someone getting diagnosed today, what would you say to them? What advice would you give them? Well, I mean, my practical advice, like, my practical advice, especially for young girls, would be to go get yourself a really nice purse because diabetes comes with a lot of stuff. (laughs) Like, there's never been a better time to buy yourself a Kate Spade handbag than right now. (laughs) And that's the upside, right? Like, there's always the upside. No, um, very good time to invest in some some quality carry all because it does. I mean, I think that's the, the the hardest thing for me with type one diabetes is all the stuff that I have with me all the time, right? Um, 
You just put, you just, uh, this might be inappropriate, but you put an image in my mind. I'm rewatching Veep and it's at the point where she decides she's going to run for president and her bag man is like, I'm going to need a bigger bag for you. <laughs> You're going to need a bigger bag. <laughs> and I do this, like if I know like a teenage girl, one of my friends is like, oh, there's this teenage girl just diagnosed type one of the Barbara Davis Center. I show up with like a Kate Spade or a coach handbag. I'm like, you're going to need this. Like, <laughs> let me just tell you right out of the gate, you're going to need it. <laughs> And you might as well look good while you have diabetes, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Like, make it look cool. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's my practical tip. Um, but my my impractical tip, my my more, like, you know, emotional tip is that actually this, this isn't the end of the world, that you will figure it out. It's overwhelming at first, but you will figure it out. Eventually, it will just be, you know, part of your life, the thing that you do. Nine days out of 10, you won't think that much about diabetes. You know, the one day you do, it's, it's probably going to be a frustrating day, but, but most of the time it's just going to, it's just going to be how you live your life and, and how you live your life will be how you would have lived your life probably without type one diabetes. Right. Um, it's not, it's not a limiting factor unless you make it, you know, limitations are only limitations if you let them be limitations. No, that's amazing. Thank you, Becky. Thanks for sharing that. And sharing your greater life story. I think people listening will definitely be in awe. I mean, the upbringing you had, how you've turned that around to get a master's today, to be on a global platform, you know, and use your condition to inspire other people. And you know, like you say, not be angry, choose positivity and uh, to make a difference. That is absolutely amazing, man. Thank you for sharing and, and thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. There you go, Becky Faruta. Tim, just love what she was saying there about, you know, like I asked her, why aren't you more unhappy? You've had so many challenges challenges in life. Why does it not get you down? You're always bubbly. And she said, I mean, it's a choice, you know, and just her whole outlook on life and the amount of people that she's been able to inspire with that outlook and Team Nova Nord is being that platform to give athletes um, that you know purpose and opportunity to inspire people it, it goes a long way but also like how lucky are we to be able to work with people like that like it's not just the riders but the ambassadors as well and it's like when it it gets tired and it gets busy and sometimes you don't want to do stuff in the morning especially when we're at camp and it's the end of the season and then you've got people like becky who's like down there at breakfast early raring to go going out on a photo shoot with pro riders uh you know, and, and saying like in a jokey way, uh, I've not trained that much so far, but like still getting out there and getting up on the climbs and pushing behind the car when she getting ready to have the photo shoot taken. Um, you know, every, 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 every single characteristic about it is an inspiring story. No, I love that. Yeah, I love that about our guys. And I mean, on a hard day, on a stressful day, if we're too busy, we just have to pop on Instagram or open an email and, and there's a message from someone saying how their life has been affected, you know, and that makes that makes the job really, really worthwhile. And like you said, not just for the athletes, but for us, the staff as well. Um, it, it really makes the job worthwhile to see that people are finding inspiration, they're finding knowledge, they're being empowering through following the team. Um, and that isn't just cycling, it's across all other sports. It's, a, it's, it's um, inspiring people to be healthier, you know, to pay attention to nutrition, you know, something I struggle with often, 
which is partly why I train so much so that I can keep the the eating uh, under control and keep the weight under control. Um, but really, really yeah, rewarding to be part of the environment. And I think the off-season is a great part, again, to take stock of that and realize that because during the season we're traveling cross continents to so many races. And when you're in the middle of it, you know, in the eye of the needle or um, in the eye of the storm, you know, you, it isn't always easy to have perspective, but the off season's a good time to, to take, to have perspective. So great for people like Becky to come on here and, and share their story. Yeah. Cause it is like a time to reflect as well, but it feels like it gets shorter every year. And I'm sure riders will say that as well. You know, they get a couple of weeks off the bike stop and then start training again and, trying to trying to keep the base that they've got on the, the base miles and it's kind of like that for us as well as i keep everything ticking over um but this is a that festive period people spend time with family friends sharing stories and this is one of the this is a good way for us to sign off this year and go into christmas because we're leaving people with a, an inspirational story that hopefully they're going to spend a bit of time over christmas listening to yeah, exactly that. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Team Nova Nordisk podcast. Let us know who you'd like us to get on next. You can email us, press at teamnovanordisk.com. Let us know who you'd like to hear from, what kind of content you would like, and yeah, we'll get them on here for you. If you like this episode, please rate it, subscribe it, and share it with a friend. Tim, thank you so much for your time. Hope you hope the, uh, the, the skies, the heavens open up a little and you get to go out there on a bike ride today, man. Thank you, man. I think they're, o- they're opening up, but uh, the wrong thing is coming down. <laughs> Cheers, man. Have a good Take day. Take care. See you soon. Ciao, ciao.